So we continue our look at the book of Matthew. If you want to go ahead and turn there, we are in Matthew chapter 22. Uh, Last week, uh, Ross took us through the first question that they asked to Jesus, um, and uh, we got to spend some time in that. This week, we get the second question, the second confrontation, the second trap. So as we start, you know, I want to think a little bit about the concept of an afterlife, of an eternity, of heaven, resurrection. These are all terms that are, are very Christian, but I want us to know that these are not terms that are exclusively Christian. One author writes, I cannot believe that God would create man and then desert him at the grave. And if you look back through most of history, most cultures, most religions have some view of the afterlife. For example, ancient Egyptian Book of the Dead, which just sounds like a cool book, right? The Book of the Dead had a resurrection hope. There was a pharaoh who actually, they had built him a boat, a solar boat, to travel into the afterlife, and he was buried with that. Ancient Greeks would take a coin and put it in the mouth of the dead person so that they could pay the tax to get across the river into the afterlife. Some Native Americans, when, when, when someone would die, a warrior would die, they would kill a pony, and they would take the pony and his bow and his arrow and bury them all together so that that way he would have his favorite horse with him in the afterlife to hunt buffalo again. The Norsemen believed uh, they provided a horse as well so that the, the horse could take him triumphantly into the afterlife. In Greenland, the Eskimo children would have their dog killed as well. It's that's like a double sad day, right? The dog would be put to death and buried with the child so that the child would have a guide into the next life. Now, even Benjamin Franklin, who was definitely not a Christian, Benjamin Franklin believed in some sort of afterlife, and he wrote this of his own epitaph, because why not? Benjamin Franklin writes stuff about himself all the time. He says, The body of Franklin, printer, like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding, lies here food for worms. But the work shall not be lost, for it will appear once more in a new and more elegant edition, revised and corrected by its author. Okay? So even a non-Christian like Benjamin Franklin could believe in an afterlife. So this, this, has, some, this has some weight for me, as I think it probably does you. We read this passage today, and there's lots and lots of questions. What does that mean? And what does this mean? As we look forward to a future for all who are in Christ, what does that mean? And I have a, I have a special connection to this, because about 10 years ago, when I was teaching, um, I was teaching at a local Christian school, and I had a young lady who transferred into our school. And the reason why she transferred into our school is her mom, her dad, and two of her siblings had died in a plane crash in California. And so she moved here to live with her grandma. And we, at, at, at one of my assignments as a teacher was to teach kind of a summary of the New Testament, focusing on also the end of time, the end of the book of Revelation. And so when I got up and I said, we're going to talk about heaven, she came to me after school and she said, I just want you to know, J-Rob, that was my name, they called me J-Rob. I want you to know, J-Rob, I'm going to be checking every verse you say. And I said, why is that? And she goes, because I want to know for sure what my mom and dad 
are seeing right now. I want to know what my brother and my little baby sister, what they're experiencing at this moment. And talk about, well, first of all, that's a lot of pressure, right? But also, it's a lot of realism, isn't it? It's a lot of just, this is real life that we're dealing with here. And so Brandy, when, when we got done with our section, um, was ecstatic. She was so excited. Not because she gets to go see them again in the future, but because she could kind of imagine what they are experiencing at this moment. So today, Jesus is going to correct the Sadducees, and we'll explain who they are in a minute. And he's going to correct them because their view of the afterlife is more informed about life here and about the things that they're going through in this life, especially the fact that they're wealthy and they're, they're trying to enjoy life. And so this has led them to misread their Bibles. This has actually led them to exclude portions of their Bible. And so today, for us, we need to not be like the Sadducees. We need to not go and say, well, I think this is the way heaven's going to be. I think this is the way life in heaven's going to be. And it sure looks a lot like something from a movie or a Looney Tunes cartoon. You guys remember that, right? Roadrunner and Wiley Coyote, and Wiley Coyote would die, and he'd like float up with angel wings and be on clouds, right? I just dated myself on that one quite a bit. But, okay, so, you know, take it to a cartoon, and you see sitting on clouds and that's what heaven's to be like, and, and unfortunately, that's not what it's to be like. So today, the challenge for us is to allow all of our preconceptions to kind of move, move aside and get into what does the Bible actually say. All right, so let's get into the story. The first thing we see is we see Jesus' adversaries. Okay, this is kind of an outline of the passage. The adversaries show up. Verse 23, the same day the Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question. So that, 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 that same day, that actually literally means in that hour. So Jesus has just gotten done correcting their view of Caesar and God, with the Pharisees and the, and the Herodians, and now we've got the Sadducees. They're just like waiting to pounce. Now these Sadducees, they are the wealthy, educated elite, right? So they are the cream of the crop. Now, for most of them, they were wealthy before they were Sadducees. They chose to be Sadducees because of their wealth, because of their prestige. They're really a lot like us in that we live for a lot of things in this world. We let our culture tell us a lot of things. Tomorrow morning, the conversation in some realms will be on the football game that's happening later today. But for most people, the conversation's going to be over the commercials. Right? It's going to be over what's the new thing, the new movie, the new this. And that forms a worldview. It forms how we look at things. And the Sadducees were just like that. And because of their being formed by their world, they had an incorrect view of God's word. They believed that there were five books that were capital T, truth. And all the rest of the books in the Old Testament were lowercase t and kind of optional. Matthew wants us to see this, because the only thing he says about the Sadducees, he doesn't say they're in charge, which they were. They ran the Sanhedrin, the governing body for the Jews. He doesn't say they're the wealthy, which they are. All of them are wealthy. He doesn't say they're the most influential, the most talented, the most whatever. He instead says they didn't believe in a resurrection. He wants us to get that this is the point. 
So the, the Sadducees came to God's word and they said, we like these books, we're going to go with these, all the rest, yeah, whatever. And we're going to choose the parts we like. And even, and Jesus is going to show this, even when they look at their five books, they actually pick and choose of the five books what they're going to believe as well. We cannot do that. We must go to God's word and let it inform us, not let us tell it what to say. Some of my students here in the room that were in my Bible class this week, I kind of preached the sermon early to you. So some of you got that in class today, this week. So sorry, but it's good to hear it again. See, the easy way to go in our world is to go with the world. The easy way is to go with whatever direction the world goes. But like we've talked about before, a dead fish goes with the flow. A living fish goes against the flow. And we as Christians have a God who's not the God of the dead fish. He's the God of the living fish. And we are going to have to go against the flow. I mean, you think about it, the Sadducees, this is a great place to be in. Not only do they know, they, they think there's no repercussions for what they do, right? There's no judge. There's no afterlife. There's no damnation. There's also no blessing, right? So for them, just live it up. YOLO, okay? Live the life you got right in front of you. Grab it. And who cares, What's the worst that can happen? You die and then you don't even know you're dead. So no big deal. This is their version of the good life. So they come to Jesus with a conundrum. They bring a problem. And I I think this was one that they had used before, right? It seems like this might have been one that was used before. Let's look at it. Verse 24. Saying, teacher, Moses said... If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among them. And as we know, they probably needed seven brides, but they only got one. The first married and died, having no offspring left to his brother. And so to the second and the third, all the way down to the seventh. So they bring this out. This is their best of their best argument to kind of catch Jesus and probably to show up the Pharisees as well. The Pharisees, who were the dominant group, now they didn't, weren't the dominant leaders, but they were the group that everybody knew, and they were out teaching the people. Most of the Jewish people agreed with the Pharisees. The Sadducees were kind of their own little group. The Pharisees taught that whatever relationships, whatever situation, whatever marriage relationship you're in, whatever clothes you're literally wearing, when you die, you will be resurrected into that exact same thing. And that's it. They didn't say any more, okay? Would it be the same amount of sin, the same amount of whatever? They just said, you're going to be resurrected, and it's redo. And you can see why some people would rebel against that. But that's what the Pharisees taught. And the Sadducees were going to run with this. Now, they think they got Jesus. They think they have a perfect question. Boy, they did not learn from what came before them. So they quote the Bible to Jesus. Verse 24 is quoting Deuteronomy 25. And this is called leveret marriage, okay? L-E-V-I-R-A-T-E, leveret. It has nothing to do with Levi, except for that there's a kind of a connection to brother. It comes from the Latin word lever, which is brother-in-law. And the way this would work would be if a woman gets married and her husband dies before they have kids, the brothers would have to step in and marry her. Right? And then the firstborn of that union would be the, pre- the previous brother's kid. And then every other kid would be the second brother's kid. And on down. 
Now, some people look at this and they go, wow, this is really, this is terrible for the woman. But let's, let's take a step back and look at this. In the ancient times, there was, there was no social safety net. There was nothing to catch people. And the people that got hurt the most were orphans and widows. Because if your husband died, you have no one to protect you. Your, your father has already given you away, and you are now a part of that family. Now, fathers did take them back. But widows, there, were no, there was no option in the ancient world. And so here we see God provides because he cares for everyone, men and women, married and unmarried. And he would provide for the widow so that she would have an opportunity to do what she wanted to do, be a mother, have a family. As a matter of fact, God took this so seriously that when he was mapping it all out, he mapped Jesus' great, 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 however many great grandmother is Ruth. And Ruth married Boaz through a leveret marriage. And so we see this is a protection. Now, at this point in Israel's history, when this is happening with Jesus, this is probably not very common. This is not an actual story. They're not like, we know these seven guys, right? They're going, we're making this up. We're citing something from the Bible. So you can kind of see even their stance on the Bible is it's kind of antiquated. It kind of doesn't really do what it's supposed to do. So verse 27, they, they think they are dropping the mic. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, you can kind of hear him saying it with tongue in cheek there. Therefore, of the seven, whose wife shall she be? They all had married her. So in the, in the Sadducees' minds, this makes resurrection ridiculous. This makes it absurd. And you can kind of see it, right? Like just saying there's two guys and they got married to this lady and then they're both going to be married to her in the resurrection? Like the adding the seven kind of makes it humorous. You know, it's like seven of them, you know. So what, what law is going to take over? Whose wife will this woman be? Which of the seven? Does she get to choose? Or is it not married? How does that go? This reveals that the Sadducees viewed the afterlife just like the Pharisees. It's just this life in a different place. It's a grand do-over. It's not any kind of redeemed life. Jesus here is going to correct them. So next we see the diagnosis. I love that word diagnosis. Dia meaning with and gnosis being knowledge. With knowledge. These Sadducees are speaking without knowledge. Jesus is going to go, I'm going to give you some knowledge. Verse 29. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong. Now that's the real mic drop right there, isn't it? He doesn't need to say any more, but he does. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Jesus says, this is not a contradiction in the Bible. It's a contradiction in your thinking. It's a misunderstanding. Jesus is going to say, and the misunderstanding comes from two things that you should know. You should know your scriptures. You argue there's only five. That's even more. You can read that faster, right? We read through the Bible in a year. There's 66 books some 40,000 verses. That's a lot to get through. They had five books and some 6,000 verses, and yet they still didn't know it? Not only that, worse is they didn't know their, their God. He says, you don't know the power of God. See, the power of God is not limited. The power of God is not a power that is contracting. It's a power that is huge. It's out there. Throughout the Bible, it says there's nothing too hard for God. In the Sadducees' mind, death overpowers their God. They have a puny God. 
They have a little God. Now, we need to understand, we don't understand death very well. We think we do because we're all scientific, and the science says. But really, we, we don't understand death. And I mean, let me tell you why. Because in this time period, people saw death all the time. Now, some of you have lived long enough to have seen someone who's dead, or maybe even see someone die. Some of you haven't got there yet, and praise the Lord, okay? But eventually, we're all going to see dead people. They saw them from the time they were born. The Romans were very good at this. When they killed somebody who was in insurrection, they put the body up, and that was a billboard. They didn't have billboards. They had dead bodies. People would be walking somewhere and not plan ahead and not have enough to drink, and they could succumb to the elements. So dead bodies were common. That's not even including all the dead bodies they saw of animals, right? We go to the store, and our animals are nicely packaged, and we can take them, and we can cook them. No, they actually killed the animals and then cooked them, right? So this idea of death for us is very disconnected. Our culture does a good job of this. So we need to understand this idea of death in the Bible. The idea of death means non-revivable, right? It means there's no coming back. And that's what they're talking about here with resurrection. We, we say, oh, he was dead, but he came back. That's not true. If he came back, he wasn't dead. He was just mostly dead, right? <laughs> he wasn't fully dead. And we, we get that. And, I, and, 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 and scientifically, we get that. But kind of culturally, we, we mix it up and we mix things around. The Bible does not say we will be res, res, uh, resuscitated, all these R-E words, resuscitated. It says we're going to be resurrected. Now, this is one of the reasons why Jesus waited with Lazarus. Remember, him and Lazarus were good friends. He found out Lazarus was sick. Jesus said, actually, he's dead. Well, why aren't we going? Jesus goes, we're going to wait. Now, why did they wait? Well, the, medieval time, the, the ancient times believed that after three days, if the person didn't move, they were really dead. And so they waited three days. And Jesus went there because he wanted to show he is destroying death. He is God over real death. Not resuscitation, not a swooning and coming back. Because after three days, the person will not have any water in their system and they will be dead. There's no IVs in the ancient world. There's no you know, feeding tubes. And so this idea of resurrection means brought back to life, not resuscitated. So they, they, they're having a hard time. They're, they're, they're not getting this. And the reason they're not getting it, it's they're in rebellion against God. It's a moral rebellion. They want to live their best life at this moment. They don't want to worry about an afterlife. They want to go with the flow. And so they use word games to try to catch Jesus. They, they take the Bible and they pervert it to say, see, look at the Bible. It's kind of ridiculous. See where their, 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 their authority lies? It's it themselves. They do not bow the knee to God's word. So they don't know their Bibles. They don't know the power of God. If the Bible's not their source of truth, if they have a God that has no power, what's the use? So what do they do? They elevate themselves up to the top and they say, we are the top. And as much as we think that we are this objective, can follow whatever we want, we're just absolutely pushed along by our culture. And they were no different in this time. So Jesus starts in reverse order in verse 30. And he gives us that they have a wrong view of marriage. Marriage is wrong in their eyes. Look at verse 30. For in the resurrection, 
They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So first thing we need to note is that word like. It's a very important word. Many people have read this and said, oh, we're going to be angels in heaven. Matter of fact, they've done whole television shows and movies about this. But it's not what it says. It says we will be like the angels. And actually, we're more like the angels right now than we think. There's not a person in this room who's not immortal. Every single one of you is going to live for eternity. The question is, are you going to live for eternity under the judgment of God or under the mercy of God? And so these angels are similar to us in that. But what he's saying is the angels, they don't marry. There's no marriage in heaven. The angels are not making more angels. So this concept here, neither marry nor given in marriage. Now that means neither marry is the men's part, right? It's the man part of the marriage in ancient Israel. Given in marriage is the woman part. So it's saying both sides. It's not like we go to heaven and the guys get to choose who they want to marry and the ladies are stuck. Or vice versa. We go to heaven and the ladies are like, I'm going to decide who I'm going to marry. And you guys don't get a choice. Neither side gets to give and be given in marriage, nor will there be marriage in heaven. See, the, the resuscitation idea of this is just pre-heaven here and we're going to go to heaven and it's going to be this again is what they believe. The Sadducees are going, you all make too much of the resurrection. Jesus goes, actually, you're making too little of it. And if we're honest, this, this doesn't help us at all, right? Jesus is going, hey, you know, when you get to heaven, you're going to be like angels. We're like, can you compare it to something else? Because when it comes to angels, we don't have a lot of information. We don't have a lot of things. We have a lot of misinformation. They got wings. They got a halo. They play harps. They look like cherubs. They're little kids. Precious moments. Right? We have this kind of, these views of angels, and that's not what the Bible says. So how do, we, how do we get this? Well, it's even worse for the Sadducees, right? So the Sadducees, they don't believe in an afterlife, but they also don't believe in angels. So they're hearing this, and they're going, yep, don't believe in them either. Good job, Jesus. Nice try. But see, their God is too small. Their God can't create immortal beings, let alone revive people that he made from the dust, right? And so they see the world still organized around marriage and around family and around procreation. In their minds, this is the pinnacle, and they've elevated it up there. They have a wrong-headed notion of what marriage is about. They have a wrong-headed motion, notion thinking that it's the necessary component. Like the only way heaven will be heaven is if we can have marriages there. So we need to get our heads around this. So why, 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 are we, why, why is marriage not in heaven? And how is that a good thing? How is that a good thing? You spend your life with someone, and if you have a, a marriage that is a good marriage, you enjoy that time, and then you're to go into eternity and never experience that again? Or you're to never get married, and if that's the pinnacle, heaven is just second place. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. So why does marriage exist? Well, obviously marriage exists to keep humanity going. And yes, marriage is more than that, but it definitely includes making other small people. But here's what Jesus is saying. In heaven, we don't need to make more. So that part of marriage falls away. And what Jesus is saying, is he's, he's not saying this is, this is a bad thing. He's saying this is a good thing. Men will not marry. Women will not be given in marriage. Because marriage is the pairing of couples for life will cease to exist. 
Eternal angels don't do that. See, the world's view is cheap news. You have to live for the now. And only if you have a good marriage does life have meaning. Only if you have kids who accomplish something can you leave a legacy. And that's cheap news. The good news is, entirely countercultural, including countercultural to some in the church, is that while marriage is good, and it is good, while being fruitful and multiplying is a command, and it is also good, Having children is a gift from the Lord. These are all shadows, foretastes of what we're going to see in heaven and what we'll experience with God. It's kind of like this. A kid goes on the computer to order something. I was thinking about this, and I was going to like, I could use the Sears toy catalog. But you know, I don't think my kids have ever experienced a catalog and some of you know what that's like. You got that Christmas catalog in like November. And I mean, that thing gets worn out. You're dog ear in pages and you're leaving it out for mom and dad to see it. It's on the mirror. It's in the car. Yeah, right? You're trying to get that. So for me, it was the G.I. Joe aircraft carrier, right? There's this humongous aircraft carrier that your little teeny G.I. Joe figures. And I wanted that. So I, I pulled that. Out. I didn't get it. My mom's sitting right over here. <laughs> I wanted it, right? And so I looked at that picture, and I was like, yes, and we would have had no place to put it, and I hear all the parent reasons, but I'm, I wanted that. So that's like marriage. Now, bear with me, okay? I'll make this make sense. That's like marriage. If I get the toy, and I still want to look at the paper, right? I still want to look at the screen of the thing I just clicked for Amazon, and the Amazon delivery guy just delivered it. But I'm like, oh, I want to look at the screen. The screen is great. And it is. It's impressive. I mean, the pictures were awesome. And all of my hopes and dreams around what that toy would be like is right there. But the real thing is here. See, marriage on earth is meant to point us to what our life is going to be like in eternity. Present conditions on earth are not resumed in heaven, but are far surpassed. See, the side, we get sidetracked just like the Pharisees. We think that the point of marriage is love and romance. And I understand, men, Valentine's Day is Wednesday, okay? <laughs> Public service announcement, it's not too late. And I get that. And romance and love, it's good. But it's not the point of marriage. It's not even having kids is the point of marriage. And the thing is, if you're not married, the marriage is around you. That's not the point either. The point is this all points to something greater. Marriage ceases, but not intimate relationships. See, and the thing is, that word intimate, it makes me a little nervous because when we hear the word intimacy, we go straight to sex. But the word intimacy is so much more than that. Yes, sex is a part of it, but intimacy is what we're going to have in heaven on a scale that we cannot comprehend. Listen to the Apostle Paul when he describes this moment. 1 Corinthians 15. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. We shall be changed. But he goes earlier, he's describing this, and he says, so it is with the resurrection. What is perishable will be raised imperishable. What is sown in dishonor will be raised in glory. What is in weakness, raised in power. A natural body will now be a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. He's trying to give us as many words as he can for us to understand the greatness of the resurrection. 
Marriage ends not because intimate relationships cease, but because they proliferate. See, the thing is, on earth, with all of the sinners on earth, which is all of us, we cannot be intimate with a couple people. There's just going to be things that are getting in the way. Our sin nature, our not being able to keep secrets, our secrets that we want kept but someone else doesn't want, we cannot be intimate. And so for marriage, we have that one person who is intimate. We maybe have some other friends that we also share things with, but we don't let it all out. One, because it's bad. And two, because we can't handle it. But in the new heavens and new earth, it's all out there because it's all good. Sin has fallen away. Gossip has fallen away. Shame, the looking down on certain sins, looking down on certain people, or the fear of being looked down on is gone because we mishandle things. In heaven, we will share secrets without shame and voluntarily. Such will be the power of God. Intimacy will be experienced. And the closest that we can get the intimacy on earth is a singular marriage relationship. And even then, we mess it up, and it's mostly the guy's fault. But we mess up marriages, right? And God says, this is a little teeny picture of what the great expanse is going to be. The agape that's going to continue to flow out for all of eternity as we experience that on a daily basis. The best moment with your spouse is what we will experience every moment of eternity. And that's amazing. The best moment with your closest friend is going to be experienced in eternity. Now, does that mean when we get to heaven, we won't know each other? No. I think our relationships on earth, we're going to have that, that closeness, but that closeness is going to spread to everyone, and there's going to be connections throughout. Now, this does leave a lot of questions, and I get that. There's a lot of questions here, and my teacher hat wants to go, okay, anyone have any questions? Let's go. Let's answer them. But this is a time for preaching. This is a time for exhorting and challenging. So if you have questions about this, I encourage you. Our library has many good books on heaven. You can come see me. I have books on heaven. We can talk about things. But we must constantly go to God's word to see what it is that is our destination. And in our final destination, we are going to have so many friends. We're going to have so many people that we are close to. And the things that keep us from wanting to be close with other people right now will fall away. And there will be unity and community because sin is gone. There is no flesh. There is no hurt. There is only joy. So Jesus corrects their wrong view of marriage. You guys misunderstand. Marriage isn't the be-all and end-all. It's pointing to God and our relationship with him. Next, we see a wrong view about heaven. They have a wrong view about heaven. Verse 31. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham. And I'm going to add in one thing here. I'm not changing the Bible because this is what it actually means. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. The I am phrase is here. This is how God introduces himself to Moses. He says, who, who should I say sent me? I am sent me. This is God's name. See, the Sadducees had a defective understanding of God, which led to a defective theology, which led to them reading their Bibles and leaving things out so that they could make sense of what they believed wrongly. Now, Jesus here could have blasted them. 
I mean, he's God after all. He was there when he put it together. He could say, this is what we're doing. He could have started in Genesis 1 and 2, and he could have said, God made from dust, why can't he bring dead people back? He could have said, you guys mistakenly don't include Daniel 12 too. You don't include Isaiah 26, 19, or Job 19, or heck, Psalm 16, Psalm 68, Psalm 110. You all need to go read those, he could have said. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do a systematic lecture. He could have also said, hey, I want to introduce you to Peter, James, and John. You know, the other day we were on this little hill, and this guy named Moses showed up. He's been dead for 1,480 years, and they talked to him. Oh, and Elijah, the guy that went up in the chariot from those books that you don't believe in, he was there, and he was talking as well. Or Jesus could have said, just wait, come see me on Sunday after I've resurrected, and then I'll show you. No, instead, he doesn't do that. Instead, he takes them right back to God's word, and he says, let me show you in the Bible why you're wrong. Let me show you where it's at. And he takes them to, and we see the quotations there in verse 32. This is Exodus 3, which says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Jesus is saying, notice, it doesn't say, I was. I was the God of Abraham, who'd been dead for 600, 700 years. I was the God of Isaac, also dead for about five to 600 years. I was the God of Jacob, dead for 500 years at the time Moses gets this. He didn't say was. He says, I am. And we do this sometimes when we are talking with each other. Oh, Billy was so kind. Was? Did he die? No, no, he was just kind then. Oh, okay. Whew. For a second there, you know, but we, you, we, we, we struggle with the English language because it is limited. The Hebrew language is not. The word I am means continually. He is there with them now. God is not the God of the dead, the corpses. And what's interesting here, this should not have been a surprise for the Sadducees. This was one of their most important verses. They would have memorized it. They would have known it. But the problem was, they couldn't see it. God, the God of giving life, they were missing out on something about God because they wouldn't study their Bibles. They held their Bibles at arm's length. Instead of going to God's word for answers, they went to whatever sounded good to them. They went to whatever made sense for them. See, we're the same way. We come to God's word, and we want quick. We want quick answers. Tell me what this means for me right now and move on. God wants us to stop and chew. You know, we do this with, when it comes to our own personal Bible study. It's easy to have someone give us the questions that we want, like a mother bird that comes in and chews the food and then spits it in the baby's mouth. But God's word needs more than that. We need to dig in. See, these Sadducees, they had read Exodus thousands of times, more than we've ever read any part of our Bible, because it was what they read, and yet they couldn't see what was right in front of them, because they'd already made up their minds about it. Here at New Life, we have Bible studies. Right now, the men are going through Ecclesiastes, which might be the toughest book in the Bible. The women are going through Hosea, which might be the second most toughest book in the Bible. And they're both going at different paces in different ways. And that's good. The men, we are, we are reading it and going through it together, and then we're reflecting on it because it is that kind of book. 
Hosea, the women are going through and they're chewing on every single morsel, trying to understand it. And both of those are good. There's also a place for reading the Bible and having someone give you an idea of it and then going into it. But it all needs to keep going deeper and deeper. Wherever you're at, if you're still at the place where you're needing someone to give you questions to get into it, that's good. But don't stop there. Don't stop there. Go deeper and deeper into God's word. Where the Sadducees had had a problem was they had been okay with, I'm fine with what I know. So today, as we're getting into heaven and eternity, be like my student Brandy and go, okay, Pastor John, you said this. I'm going to check your math. I'm going to check your, your Bible math. I'm going to go in there and look it up. And then I'm going to chew on it and I'm going to read it. We need to be people of the word that continually hits us and forms who we are. We need to not be like the Sadducees here because we have this view that's wrong. But let's get back to that. That's kind of a little side because I want to get into this view of heaven. Like I already said to you guys, and you guys have probably had some of the similar things. When I was a kid, I believed heaven was a place we went and it was spiritual and we kind of just did you know, Chris Tomlin songs for eternity. Right, worship songs for eternity. And it was not physical. It was a very spiritual place, and that was it. This is not what the Bible teaches, okay? And so we're going to give people the benefit of the doubt, so I don't want you to be calling up your radio shows or talking to Pat, call up old pastors and be like, you said this, and you're wrong, okay? People use the word heaven, and they mean lots of different things. So we're going to try to cut through this. I'm going to put on my teacher hat for a second and try to cut through this a little bit so we kind of understand. Because I remember when I found out that, you know what, we're not spending eternity in a spiritual heaven. That rocked my world. Because that's not what the Bible teaches. We're not going to be floating around with togas on, playing harps, singing worship in a place that's not physical. Instead, we're going to be on a new earth with bodies, with each other forever. And we need to get that. So first off, we need to clarify. The word heaven means wherever God's presence is most fully felt. Okay? So it's God's address, if you will. So when you die, you will go spiritually to be with God, who is spirit. It says apart from the body is to be at home with the Lord. So if you die right now, boom, you're in heaven, you're a spirit, you're there. Now you're not some kind of ephemeral whatever. You still have identity. You still have you. You can remember things from earth. It seems like you can see things on earth. Revelation 9 and 10 talks about that. But that's what you're going to be. That's where you go. Okay? Everybody tracking with me? This is like an airport on the way to Disney World. Right? It's amazing. I mean, we, we flew, and this isn't on the way to Disney World, unless you go a weird way. But we flew to Istanbul's airport, which is one of the world's most famous airports. It's like three miles long, and it's got shops galore and it's, it's crazy. But to go to that airport and be like, this is the best destination ever when you're on your way to something better, that's what the heaven is now. It's still amazing. We're not going to have sin. We're not going to have bodies. The meaning of death. All of that is gone. We'll be in God's presence. And what that looks like, the Bible is really quiet on because it's this short time. However, at the end of time, that last trumpet that we read in 1 Corinthians 15 that's when we get new bodies. And the Bible says Jesus' body is a picture of that. So I don't know what that means. I don't know what kind of scars we're going to have. I don't know what, that, what age we're going to be. 
But I do know there will be no more death. There will be no more dying. There will be no more tears. All of that has passed away. And behold, he has a new creation. So we get to go to a new earth and we're going to inhabit this earth. Will there be animals there? Will your favorite pet be there? I don't know. But it's sure fun to imagine what that would look like. But the thing is, what's going to be there is all of the believers from all of time and all of us worshiping God through being with him and loving each other and being in his presence. Still, lots of questions, I know. So how does this work? So God gives us a new earth. This one gets whatever, refurbished, burned up. We don't know. Seems like it's going to be burned up, but that could be a purifying burn. We go to the new earth with our new bodies. So yes, you've been to funerals where you've heard, oh, Grammy, she's up there doing cartwheels now on the streets of gold. No, she's not. Not yet. Just wait. She's in the holding pattern, right? She's on the, she's on the, uh, the airport on the way to the new earth. The new earth is where the streets of gold and the gates that are pearls and all of that is described. But here's the best part. It says that the new heavens are, or the new earth is here. And it says God comes down and resides on earth. And there is a new heaven and a new earth. And that's with us. The distance that happened from Genesis 3 is gone. And God can live with us on this new earth. It's, uh, that's the picture that we need to have. This intimacy that we're going to have with each other. This intimacy that we're going to have with God. We are no longer seeing God. because It's hard to see God sometimes, right? Sometimes it's like, God, what are you doing? I don't get it. This is hard. We're seeing darkly right now what we will see clearly. When we look at our marriages and the successes and the good things in our marriages, we're seeing darkly of what the relationships are going to be like in heaven. When we have a friend who is, who is closer than a brother, that's darkly what the life's going to be like in eternity. So again, I know there's lots of questions, and this could go on for hours. We could, we could do it. But I want to encourage you, read Revelation 20 through 22. Read the end of the story. We have the ending, right? Now, I know some of you who are like mystery people, you're like, we don't read the end of the story. It spoils it. No, this doesn't spoil it. This keeps us on track. Stop and meditate on Revelation 21 and 22. And then go to the bottom of your page or on the Bible app, click the, the links. Because guess what? In the Old Testament, no heavens, new earth. It's there. Jesus talks about it. We've seen it in Isaiah. We've seen it in the Psalms. We've seen it all over the place. Just chase those bunnies. They're good bunnies to chase about God's word. Tomorrow morning in our Monday morning email, called our gleanings. I'm also going to list a bunch of verses and links to videos and links to articles about this. If you want to be a part of that, go on newlifenw.com slash subscribe and get that and chase them down. Because we're all going there. We all know people who've already gone there. Wouldn't it be a good idea to start imagining? Because I think for some of us, heaven's just kind of out there. We haven't even opened the catalog to look at what's there. Instead, we've got this view of something that's sort of kind of maybe heaven, but more Hollywood. Instead, open up your Bible. Start imagining what it will be like. And the best you can come up with, it's not going to scratch the surface of how great it will be in eternity. So, the last thing we see is the amazement. Verse 33. When the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. So I want you to take a second. 
I know. Today was kind of like drinking from a fire hose. I get that. But what are you feeling right now? Are you feeling amazement at this? Does this make you long for heaven? Are you bummed? Are you relieved? Are you indifferent? What are you feeling right now? If we know the word of God and we know the power of God, we should be amazed at this. Because the resurrection is the best news ever. It's not something we can earn. It's been earned on our behalf by Christ. And it's the best news no matter where you find yourself today. This is the best news for the married, happily married people in this room. Happily married friends, your marriage is designed and intended to point you to Christ. And you have it right there in front of you. And when you are raised on the last day, it will be a sweeter marriage feast than you could have ever imagined. For those of you who are unhappily married, this is good news about the resurrection. Likely you've been sold the bill of goods that marriage is all that matters, or marriage is the thing that will bring you happiness. Every morning you wake up and you're let down. Well, the prospect of a resurrection is going to bring you that real happiness. Put your hope in that. More happiness than you'll ever know. One day, instead of waking up disappointed, you're going to wake up in glory. And that sorrow turns to joy. And your joy is going to be all the sweeter for how sorrowful it was here. This is the best news for single people as well. Not only will you be on par with those in the new creation, but you'll finally realize in the fullest sense that marriage is not the secret to happiness. The futility and disappointment you felt in your life will be replaced with satisfaction that Jesus will give you more than you can imagine on this earth. You'll realize that you never needed to be married to experience true joy. And it goes on and on. This is the best news for sick people. There will be no more sickness. The best news for healthy people the worried people, the peaceful people, the fearful people, courageous people, shame-filled people, and confident people. The resurrection is good news because the death of Christ is good news and it's purchased us for us. So today, all I'm doing is describing a page of the catalog to you. And you're limited by my words. But God's not limited in what he can show you in his word. God's not limited in what we can see by having a relationship with him. When we become those who follow Jesus as his adopted children, the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. He makes a little sliver of heaven inside of us. The third member of the Trinity is inside of you, making resident in you to give you that joy, to be able to help you experience the things that you only can dream of in heaven. So as we wait, which we're in a waiting pattern, we haven't even gotten to the, to the layover yet. As we wait, let yourself imagine and dream and think about eternity. Let's live in light of where we're going. Let's be people of eternity. And that starts first and foremost by submitting to Christ right here and right now. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, Lord, we are just so in need of more of you. Lord, we, we know that your son has died on the cross to pave the way. Lord, we know that your spirit comes and lives inside of us to help us guide us in the way. And Lord, we know that you are waiting there with open arms to welcome us. Lord, help us to live that truth. Help us to live the truth that there is something better than this life. That we're not just going to be resuscitated to the same old, same old, but we're going to be re reborn and resurrected to something brand new. And yes, there will be things that will be similar, but they're going to be so much better. Lord, thank you for being there at the end of our journey. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to see things rightly, that you would help us to cut through the culture's view of things, that we would be people of your word, that we would never stop looking at your word to form who we are. Lord, we praise you for this word in your name. Amen.